Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge podcast, where we discuss creatives of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, and on this episode, we chat with producer Khalil Sullivan of Shoga Films as we discuss the Queer Harlem Renaissance Project, highlighting the unsung heroes of the LGBTQ artistic community. Take a listen. Welcome, Khalil. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me to take part in today's show. Absolutely. I'm I'm so excited about this project. Andre uh, Barnes, who is who uh, does the publicity for your for your project, uh, reached out to me, I think, like a few weeks ago. Mm. Um, and um, I saw the prospectus and um, well, you tell us, you can tell us what is the Queer Harlem um, Renaissance Project? So our project really aims to bring to film all the wonderful lives and stories of particularly the queer uh, Black folk who are involved in the Harlem Renaissance. Many folks think the Harlem Renaissance um, is just only about Blackness. And what a lot of the research we've done uh, indicates is that it was very much a part of the queer community as well, that there were queer and Black artists uh, doing work that was sometimes overtly queer, sometimes it was kind of on the DL, but it's an active part of the Renaissance. Great. So what kind of, what what um, made you want to be part of this project and how did this project come to be? Well, I identify as uh, queer and Black as well. Um, so I really got into the Renaissance uh, during my research in graduate school. Um, and then fell in love with these stories and wish I knew more about the contributions of queer Black individuals um, in all of uh, American history, but I uh, just found this great pleasure in the Renaissance. Uh, and then I met Marcus Harris, who's one of our producers involved in this project and directors of the project, and also uh, Robert Philipson, uh, who kind of uh, writes the scripts and conceives of some of the ideas and does the research. And it was just a great marriage of people with great intentions and actions and ideas. So that's why I got involved. Great. Um, it's, it's so fascinating because I lived in Harlem for about, for about two to three years. I lived like on 125th street and off of uh, Frederick Douglass. And I like, for me, it's like, I had an idea of certain queer artists in the, um, during the Harlem Renaissance, but I didn't know that it was so vast. Um, like, with the singers, like with Bessie Smith, I, and we had the HBO movie that came out with um, Queen Latifah, which was great. Yeah, um, yeah. But can you tell us more about what you said about like the some of the the art that we had that <sighs> you had some of these artists talking about their queerness that we didn't really know. Right. So, you know, the latest part of our project focuses on um, the first truly positive portrayal of uh, homosexual love and desire. Uh, And that's Bruce Nugent's prose poem, Smoke Lily's Jade. Um, That was really the first in American letters that had a positive portrayal of queerness. Richard Bruce Nugent uh, was from a kind of elite Washington, D.C. family. He was a friend of Langston Hughes. And one day he met Langston and Langston said, you know what? Things are happening in Harlem. Come on up to Harlem. So we really have Bruce Nugent to thank uh, for just being out and queer. Uh, But there were others, like you said, like Bessie Smith. There were songwriters. um, There were other artists who had to kind of understand how to manage their queerness. But this latest round of our project focuses on Bruce and his amazing prose poem. Um, So that's, that's kind of... Bruce is the the reason why I'm into the Renaissance because he's really I think is for contemporary queer black folk he's the one who looks the most legible to us because he was so unashamedly queer um yeah 
Great. So what other projects do so you have? So this this 15 minute doc you you it's described as a prospectus. Is there the plan to create a more a, a more of a feature length or a, a longer um Exactly. The goal is to make a feature length project. Uh, you know, Robert's been doing films for a while and he wanted to, he had an idea of like, let's do the full documentary about the uh, the queer contributions in the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, so that's the goal. And we've been breaking up into doing short pieces along the way. Um, so that's the idea, just do a full project. Now this requires lots of funding and time. So we're trying to building the arsenal of ideas and trying to merge them into one big prospectus to present to people and say, hey, let's get more funding for this kind of thing. Because both Black and queer audiences right now are showing a desire to see our history in this beautiful new light. Right. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, I, there were two things that happened. Um, this Yesterday, of course, uh, the Pulitzer Prizes were announced. Um, yeah, and I believe we had, history was made because we had our first openly gay playwright yeah and that was exciting i was like wow <laughs> i mean we still have a ways to go but this this is progress <laughs> right right yeah. i haven't seen his musical a friend of mine saw it and said oh my god and actually a friend of mine and robert uh on, on from sugar robert Philipson saw it and said wow this is the one to see and i couldn't make it to new york to see it during its airing time but i was so impressed when i read the the news yesterday about the pulitzer so yeah Mm-hmm. And then I think Jeremy O. Harris, I, I think he identifies as as queer, mm-hmm. um, had slave play, which was very controversial, <laughs> yeah. but was getting was getting very positive reviews. I mean, I, I saw some critiques of it, but for mm-hmm. the most part, I mean, he's he's definitely made a name for himself, and now he has movie deals, mm-hmm. television deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing I saw um, this past weekend. Uh, Ryan Murphy has this Netflix series called Hollywood. Um, And it's basically a a what if reimagining of what if we had an industry set in the, in the forties. And the the question is, what if we could have an industry that was, you know, um, devoid of like racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. And uh, Jeremy Pope uh, plays uh, this gay, openly gay uh, screenwriter. Archie, um, and he's been getting a lot of positive reviews. And I I just love that representation because he was just very unashamed of who he was. Um, and also the fact that um he was a sex worker, so he was he was mm. doing sex work on the side to support um his and I and I just kind of felt like not only the actor of Jeremy, but it's like even in Hollywood, we still don't really have openly gay let's let's talk on the male side openly gay mm. male black actors um why do you think we're, we're why, what do you think accounts for that why we why we're, a lot of them are still closeted oh, <laughs> that oh you're asking big questions but important questions mm-hmm. um you know i can look at bruce nugent's career as a, as a great example as i mentioned before like we've just done this kind of newer piece based on smoke lilies and jade Bruce was the one of the few openly uh, queer identified, I guess you could say, individuals in the Renaissance. And I don't think things have changed 100 years later. Uh, Bruce was good friends with Wallace Thurman, and they were both in um, an art collective that they self-called Nigerati Manor, along with Zora Neale Hurston, author of Their Eyes Are Watching God, Langston Hughes partook in it as well, Aaron Douglas, the artist. They tried to get a literary journal off the ground called Fire. It it spectacularly flamed out after one issue because of funding issues. But at the time, 
they realize that Black folk know about queerness and other kind of non-heteronormative sexualities, but they're sometimes afraid to talk about those things publicly because they're worried about how white folk will see them or how other folk will see them. I think the same thing is happening now. As Black folk, and this is just the real honest truth about being Black, as W.E. Du Bois talks about double consciousness, we have to play this tight walk Right, we're on a tightrope, and we have to watch how how we think of ourselves, but how other people see us as well. And there's those stereotypes that proliferate about us, and some of those stereotypes are about hypersexuality. And so queerness starts intersecting with hypersexuality, and there's a fear of how people will see us as black folks. So I think that concern is just still alive for black folk today. The stereotypes about hyperviolence, hypersexuality, um, all these things are still prevalent today, and black folk are having to walk this tightrope constantly. Um, I think it's happening today still. I just think it's still happening. Right. So you mentioned a number of uh, authors who are, who, are, who are pushing the envelope. There's also, uh, I heard about Tessa Thompson is starring in an adaptation of Nella Larson's Passing, another yes. queer Black novel written during the Renaissance that kind of deals with it in a very, it manages it in a very interesting way. Um, and there's also, there's Madam C.J. Walker's piece, not openly queer, but her daughter, Alelia Walker, who became an heiress of the Madam C.J. Walker fortune, was also openly queer. Um, so we've had this history for a long time, and there are new pieces coming out now, I think, as, as Black folk are trying to sit in their, in their identity and negotiate their identity from a, pos- a position of, of, of strength now. And I think, in addition, it's the kind of movement of the gay and lesbian movement of the 60s and 70s and, and kind of the queer aspects of it, the 1990s and so forth. So people are feeling their power. People are feeling their strength now. And they want to see that reflected also in the historical narratives they're being told about them. So I think that's what's happening. There's, there's a small shift happening right now. And the artwork is reflecting that shift in desire from Black folk to say, you know what? We think right now we have the strength to control these narratives and control how we're seeing and manage and negotiate those in in, in a a more um, robust way. Right. Um, Because I I also think about the fact that when we talk about the representation of of Black queer folks, uh, particularly on the entertainment side, as far as movies and and, uh, TV, there's been a lot of criticism about the fact that there's been this sort of erasure Mm. Right. That when we think about queer representation, it's usually in the body of like able bodied, cisgendered, yeah. you know, white gay male. That, that, that's like the prototype. Um, and what was interesting, I remember a few years ago, there was this very interesting conversation. I, I say interesting um, on Twitter where, you know, there's been there's this kind of resentment. Right. In mm. the white queer community as where they feel that, well, black people are the most homophobic mm. and the whole thing with Prop 8 came out. And I think there was a report that said, you know, there were black people that voted. There was a a certain percentage of black people that voted against Prop 8 or Mm -hmm. for Prop K. And so the idea became, well, it's black people's fault. It's black people's fault that we did not get this legislation Mm -hmm. for gay marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just found it interesting. I was just like, Queer black people have been here. They've always yeah. been here. They're, yeah, you can find you know homophobia in any community if you yeah. really look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, why do you feel that there's there's this divide as far as like the the white queer community and so, the black queer community? Yeah. So their attack, their critique, first of all, is racist. Let's just call it what it is. To imagine mm-hmm. that all black people vote and think the same way is just imagining black people as a monolith. It's imagining that we just kind of walk and talk and do the same thing. We don't. 
We're a diversity of experiences. We come from di different religious backgrounds, different political backgrounds, different class backgrounds. So to imagine that we're going to act and vote, I mean, the same thing happens, same thing's happening right now in our current 2020 presidential election system. The way the black vote, quote unquote, is talked about, it's talked about as one body of people thinking and acting and believing and eating and thinking the same way. That's just a false narrative. It's racist to think of that. Like part of this project has always been the same project of the later Harlem Renaissance artists, which just push intersectionality. They didn't use that term, Kimberly Crenshaw's term, intersectionality, but folks like Bruce Nugent and Wallace Thurman and, and Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes were saying, you know what? We're not just black. We're also black and cis male. We're also black and cis female. We're also black and working class. We're also black and middle class. We're also black and atheists. We're also black and sex workers. There's so many dimensions to being a black person. And we wanted those stories. They wanted those stories to come out. We want to do the same thing. So when those stories can come out, I think the critique from folks outside the Black community who want to be in allyship with it will understand, you know what? You just can't treat the Black community the same way. You have to really engage them on their Blackness and their this, their Blackness and their this, their intersectionality and found allyship that way. So I think that critique is just, it's just racist. It's starting off in the wrong place. We are a really diverse group of people. Right. And how much do you and, and one of the things that I find so funny is when they try to blame black people for mm. homophobia, I like to remind them that you guys are the one that brought Christianity to us. Um, <laughs> and if, if you look, yeah, if you look at ancient, you know, African civilizations, we yes. definitely see that there was there were black queer communities right yes. or black uh, openly gay people and then yes. you brought this religion here and then told us that it was wrong. So yes. whose fault is it really? That's that, that you have a critique. There you go. You have the answer. Why yeah. are you asking me? You know what's going on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. There's, and, there's a wonderful um, text. Yeah, it's I, just I, weird. Yeah, it's weird. There's a wonderful text I read also in grad school. And I, if I get too academic, just tell me that, you know, keep it on the, on, on, on the, on, on the deal. But Gloria Vecker, mm -hmm. Um, uh, African Suriname, Suriname, uh, Suriname scholar. So she's out of Suriname and she did research on the Creole population of Suriname. Suriname was one of the few Dutch colonies in, in, in the West. And so they have a population of Creole folks that, you know, ancestors uh, who were enslaved Africans. Um, and at some point, slavery was ended in Suriname, but the black population remained. And so she did this great research and found a history of women loving women, a practice of women loving women uh, in Suriname amongst the Creole black women there. So, yes. We have been dealing with non-heteronormative sexualities for a long time as African peoples, as descendants of African peoples. It is the West who has brought this certain conception of, of heteronormativity and homophobia along with them. Um, and I think a lot of Black communities, um, I, don't, I shouldn't say I think, I know, Black communities have for a long time housed non-heterosexual uh, uh, couples and families. Um, I think every community has. Uh, there's just the problem is those stories aren't always on the forefront. Those stories aren't always treated the same way. Um, so people get it twisted. Uh, people misunderstand things. Right. Um, so when I was watching the podcast and, and I'm sorry, the uh, documentary and you were t referring to Nigerati way, I was thinking of um, this 2004 film that I saw. It was called Brother to Brother. Yes. Roddy and Evans, that's how. Yes. Yes. And that's how I was introduced mm -hmm. to Bruce Nugent and just just this whole idea of like this queer community living in the middle of Harlem, um, you know, and um, number one, that was like my the first online uh, on screen portrayal that I had ever seen or dramatized 
portrayal I'd seen of Zora Neale Hurston. And then, you know, I thought about like the happy times about how she was part of this community. But then I also thought about the sexism that she also experienced yeah. within that artist community, like when their eyes were watching God came out, that her work was not respected, yeah. even ab- amongst her her black male queer peers. Yes. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that, about within the community? Absolutely. So I have the same experience. I saw Brother to Brother um, in graduate school and was just amazed to have that portrayal. And I had the same reaction, like, oh, that's Zora Neale Hurston. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, but it's no surprise. We have also misogyny. We have misogyn- misogynoir problems, which is kind of, uh, it's bias against Black women. Um, and yeah, even the community of even uh, Black gay male authors from that time um, had their own problem with understanding how sexism and misogyny plays into it. Um, so I think it, it could be viewed you know, another way as well. Bruce also had problems of being of writing openly homosexual content in his novel. Zora will also have problems of writing strong female characters in, in her works as well. It's, um, it's reflective of a certain bourgeois value that came out of the Black community, the Renaissance. Um, black leaders were thinking of the Black community once again as a monolith, as one great body. And they were concerned about what white folks saw of them or how white folks perceived them. And so there was this effort to kind of clean up the Black image through uplift, through social uplift. And at the expense of that were um, strong women. At the expense of that were queer people, um, all of whom were Black. And so, yeah, it was Zora, Zora faced that problem. Bruce Nugent faced that problem as an openly queer male. Um, and then within the queer community, the solidarity was an issue. I think had, it's, it's hard to say what would have been, but we can only hope that now solidarity becomes a, an important issue. So I think um, black queers of all sexualities and genders need each other um, to kind of combat things. But yeah, she faced bias from also her black queer male counterparts. Yes. Um, and when I think back to like um, watching the project, uh, the documentary, and I seeing women like Bessie Smith and Gladys Bentley mm-hmm. and Ma Rainey, and I, I couldn't help but think of like sort of like this parallel today that when we have like our black female artists, right? Like those ladies, um, th- those artists, women artists back then were just very bold and apologetic and very sexual. Yeah. And um, in their art. And then today, I kind of feel like we're still going through the same thing where like there's this policing of how black women artists have to present themselves. Right. Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, when we look at Meg the Stallion or, you know, someone like Lizzo, it's just is this constant policing of it's like, well, back in the day, you know, black women didn't carry themselves that way. They were more respectable. And I'm like, were they really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think we go through cycles. I think so. The so the, mom, the moment you're referring to in, in music history is talked about as the classic blues movement, which was mostly black female singers with a lot of all male bands. Um, so even Louis Armstrong was actually playing in Bessie Smith's band back in the 1920s before he would have his really big breakout. Um, it was a critical moment because the record industry realized that black audiences will buy music by a black artist. And so the record industry had made this huge pivot and said, wow, there's this mass of Black people who are going to buy records no matter what the price. They want their own history. They want to hear their own singers tell their own stories. And the blues became a very popular movement because of that, a very popular genre. So I think Bessie, uh, Ma Rainey, Gladys Bentley, they were on the vanguard and they wrote a wave of certain kind of liberal values that kind of uh, got into the industry. The industry was about money. Industry doesn't care about values or morals. They just want some money. And I think Bessie, Ma, Gladys Bentley, they they were just 
being themselves, their wonderful, amazing female and queer selves, and they rode that wave. And so I think we're facing another wave now. And the question is, what kind of wave will we have? Will it be a liberal wave? Will we force record companies to be more responsible? Will we have Black-owned record companies that control what kind of art's coming out and that has a diversity of experiences? It depends. Um, things don't always happen progressively, though. You know, We go in and out of certain values. The pendulum swings the left, the pendulum swings the right. And so I think it's a question of where's the pendulum right now? And that's the question, really. Right. Um, and then I also think of, um, as far as like hip hop, right? Mm -hmm. um, the question had been for years, when are we going to have our first openly gay male rapper? Right? <laughs> Black yeah. male rapper. Yeah. And, then, and then we had Lil Nas, who's right under our noses, and then came out like last, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, where he was just like, duh, if you'd watched that video I won a Grammy for, you guys right. would have known. I was pretty much saying that I was gay. Although, let me, um, let me do you yeah yeah let me also yeah. read frank ocean though because frank came out as bisexual and everyone started calling yes. him gay and i think that's another mm -hmm. thing as well there's, there's biophobia within the queer community number one mm -hmm. i i identify as bisexual and so sometimes our my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters look at me and say uh-uh you're a cheater uh-uh you're this and i'm like hang on there uh and and biophobia is a noted problem within the gay and lesbian movement and, and has been since documented in the 1960s. But Frank came out and said, you know, listen, I, I, I love both men and women and that's who I am. And he wrote songs about it, you know. Um, Little Nas X came out as queer and we appreciate him coming out as gay. And that's amazing too. Um, I think for the longest time, people have been trying to say, I'm not the normal male, hyper male, hypersexual male that you want me to be. I'm gonna put control of that. I think, I, think, I think about Little Richard. I think about Prince. Oh. Oh, Michael Jackson, right. like the history of black men saying, I'm going to resist the standard narrative. I'm going to resist the, this stereotype, I think is long. And it's long been an issue for, for, for black male celebrities and black male artists. I think of, you know, James Baldwin, who said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a black man out here and also wrote some very serious homosexual content in his novels. So I think for a long time, black men have been saying, we're going to resist the narrative of what we're supposed to be that's put out by white America that's that's rubber stamped by the the, the upper elite of, of black community as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a history. It's a history. It's a long history of us saying, hey, we're gonna resist this. And the question is who's listening? Who's listening? Right. I, I think it's important that you made that distinction between gay and bi because particularly when it comes to to men's sexuality because i don't know if it's just me but it does seem to me that sometimes it is i say this in air quotes here easier for people to accept um a man to be gay as opposed to be bisexual like women being bisexual they're just like oh i totally get yeah. that mm -hmm. but a man being bisexual they're like i don't get it <laughs> i don't understand yeah i i you know what my my own dissertation research about the dandy and the black dandy is part of that that question I have um, for people as well. I think there's there's a there's a turn in the 20th century where the idea of what a man was supposed to be um, became codified, and I'm just, just, still trying to figure out like when and why that moment came came into being. But there's a question of what a man's supposed to be and what's a black man supposed to be, and those things are kind of I think related a little bit, and I don't know why, but it's a thing, and I think that affects our views of bisexuality among amongst men, amongst black men as well. Um, I think that I think right. the biphobia also plays into it because I think bisexual black men are perceived as even more hypersexual than heterosexual black men. Um, because they can because they have an attraction to both genders or all genders. Um, so I think it's part of it. I think it's super complicated and weird and it's tied up in our weird gender history in the West. 
And that that Western gender history is imposed upon us as Black folks, as you were saying before, as Black folk, Black folk in the diaspora. And we're having to negotiate with that. We're having to negotiate that and from a different position of power. And it just gets super complicated. Right. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about the catalog? What else you have under the, the Queer Harlem um, Renaissance Project? So you have this perspective and what other projects is, is Shoga Films working on? Right. So we also have the Congo Cabaret, which was a short that uh, Robert finished in 2018. It was released in March 2018. That was also directed by the Gosfields, who also directed this, this perspective. Um, and that Congo Cabaret is a wonderful adaptation of, a, of, of portions of Claude McKay, Black gay writer of the Renaissance, his novel Home to Harlem. Um, and in that, just like you saw with Ronnie Evans' Brother to Brother, uh, Robert had the idea of like, all right, I'm going to make this documentary about the queer Harlem Renaissance, but I also need this part that shows people what it was that's really fun. And Congo Cabaret is that short element of bringing color and life to the historical stuff. Um, so that's a, a wonderful piece in the collection. And then there's also Mood Lavender, which is a documentary as well, a short documentary that Robert did earlier um, that uh, that goes along with Congo Cabaret. And the last bit is Taint Nobody's Business, a short documentary released in 2000, 2010, excuse me, that features the women singers that we mentioned before, uh, Gladys Bentley, uh, Bessie Smith, and Ma Rainey. So it's been a, a kind of collection of short documentaries and all these kind of also kind of um, uh, dramatic pieces, smaller pieces that dramatize the history as well. That's all in the collection. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. So how did you get, so I know that with the prospectus that we saw with the documentary that was narrated by um, David Dix, how did you get him involved with this project? Yeah, Robert, Robert Phillipson, uh, our our director, uh, he, he knows David's father they're former partners uh living in oakland in in the bay area right so he's known Mm -hmm. david since david was little and i think just years ago he said you know david i need a great voice actor for this part and david says yes let's do it um so it's it's kind of all in the family kind of thing basically and it's just these connections that uh were in the within robert's community of of queer men that he knew and david was the son of a queer man that he dated Oh, that's great. Um, And I know Billy Porter is also attached to one of the projects. Right. Billy came in to narrate Smoke, Lilies, and Jade. And that's through the wonderful context the Gosfields have. The Gosfields are um, a Black gay film directing and writing couple um, in Hollywood. And when Robert met them to talk about this project, um, they said, okay, we're calling up everyone we know. And it was amazing because it was a small budget, but there's so many black folk and brown folk in the community said, you know what, we want to take part in this kind of work. We think this work is very important. Uh, and Billy Porter was one of them. And so we thank him for just realizing the importance of this kind of work to teach people their real history. Um, and it's in step with the work he's doing right now with Pose, which I love. Um, but yeah, the Gosfields reached out mm-hmm. to him and he said, yes, I'll do it on scale. And I'm like, wow, that's so that's so generous, you know? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us um, for our listeners where they can find you on social media and kind of how they can um, donate to this project because I really want this made. Yeah. <laughs> I really want this document to be made. So do I. Um, so how, so great. Yeah. Um, so they can find us on Instagram, of course, and Facebook. Um, and a lot of the films can be seen on Canopy. Canopy is this wonderful um, uh, film database. Um, that most people have access to because most public libraries have access to Canopy. That's Canopy with a K, 
and so if you want to see the films, you can go to Canopy, uh, usually through your local library's website, or just go to Canopy's website. And if you just want to follow Shoga Films, find us on Instagram, and also find us on Facebook to keep up with the kind of weekly writings we do about current Black art that's in the same kind of wheelhouse and any kind of work we're doing also with our projects currently. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us, Khalil. Thank you. It's been awesome. Great. Thank you.